Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Sister Gable, the editor of the TLS. Joining me, back from the languor of her sick bed like a Victorian heroine, is the faintly tuberculotic Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, how are you feeling? Hello, yes. I'm, Completely I'm, well? Are you I'm, cold? I, I am cold. How can you be cold? But this I am, is I so am cold. warm. Do you not remember a few years ago there were those stories <laughs> written about uh, women being cold in offices and why that was. Do you yes, I do. Yes. So yes. in the 1930s, they devised what the kind of the standard metabolic rate was uh, for men and women. Well, they based they based their calculations on the average male, and so then that became the standard that was rolled out for things like air conditioning and oh, car so safety. They had to redesign car test dummies, for example, a few years back because. They, they were based on a male, a very male. It's anatomy. a man's world, basically. It's a man's world, yes. And so, actually, women are colder. It takes it takes us more external heat to reach the same God optimum sake. conditions for our concentration and, and our productivity. And that must change. And yet, against the odds, I still manage to turn up and work. Most days. <laughs> Most days. But not crucially all days. Most days. Not all days, yeah. no. Hashtag. Apparently the optimum temperature is 72 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 22.2 Celsius. It's too hot. That's too hot. And that allows... that's that, that, But that's a sort of a happy medium for, for men and women. And it allows us to reach our optimum productivity and concentration. Well, you and your facts. <laughs> <laughs> you and your science. All I know is it's too hot today, but never mind. Here is your weekly reminder that we're having a spring sale at the TLS at the moment. Google TLS spring sale and you can get 95% off our subscription price for a couple more weeks. Coming up on the show this week, we have a cartoon theme to the paper and we'll be considering two big British traditions, the political hit job and the jolly japes and scrapes of the Beano. Cripe, say readers. The Guardian cartoonist Martin Rouse will We'll be on hand to discuss the former and arts editor Lucy Dallas, a committed beanophile, will be here to celebrate 80 years of the latter. Plus, we have a clip of our features editor Ros Deneen's chat with novelist Jasmine Ward. Her book Sing, Unburied Sing is surely one of the fiction highlights of the last 12 months. Political cartoons are unforgiving things, on their subjects, obviously, but also on their artists, who themselves tend to be pilloried and accused of all sorts of sins for showing the temerity to criticise those in power. As Martin Rousen notes in a lovely essay this week, taking offence has always been used as an aggressive weapon. 
Indeed, the controversy around cartooning is as old as the form itself. Rowson points out that the medium has tended to provoke extreme reactions universally as well as historically, especially by those in authority, whether secular or religious. For the quickness to umbrage is woven into the matrices of human power, its pomposity, atrocities and systemic fragility when it finds itself the butt of laughter. Rousen reminds us that the Gestapo infamously drew up a list of British cartoonists due for summary execution after a successful Nazi invasion of Britain. True evidence of the disquieting power of an art form to infuriate. Countries or institutions hostile to cartoons are de facto hostile to freedom itself. Martin Rousen is, of course, himself a fine cartoonist, plying his scabrous trade in The Guardian, Mirror and elsewhere. He joins Thea and me now. Martin, welcome. Hello. Why do cartoons trigger such strong emotions, do you think? I think it's something to do with the way we consume them. Um, for the last 120 years or so, uh, we've mostly seen cartoons, in this country anyway, in newspapers. And they occupy a weird topography in the layout of a newspaper because they're like gargoyles. They squat on top of these columns. And you nibble your way slowly through a column of print, but you in fact swallow the image whole. And I'm not aware of a precise verb to describe what you do when you consume a cartoon. You don't just look at it, you don't watch it, you don't see it, you don't read it. What do you do? What you often do is you swallow it whole and it hits the reptile brain and you choke on it. And do you worry as a cartoonist about the reception? I mean, how much do you try and not allow yourself to worry about it? Or is that in your mind when you're, when you're drawing? No, no, no. I mean, the point is we are, we are kind of weird amalgam of court jester speaking truth to power and telling power it's got a really stupid nose and ugly ears. Uh, but also, I, I realised a long time ago that I wasn't doing this to make ministers resign. I was making this to, feel, to make the readers uh, feel better because I was enabling them to laugh at... They're leaders. You know, as Orwell said, every joke is a tiny revolution. And that equals up the balance of power between ourselves and the people who presume to lead us. So I, I target my work at people in power. Um, I always kick up. I don't kick down. The only time I feel unhappy is if somebody has taken offence and I haven't actually aimed the offence at them. I haven't given them the gift of offence. They've taken it sort of um, randomly. And this, and this occasionally happens when people think that they're the subject of the cartoon and they're not. And are, are cartoons, are they the sort of thing that we can say uh, it's as old as time itself and, you know, point a finger to uh, at ancient graffiti? I mean, but uh, you know, as long as there have been power structures, there have been cartoons. Or do we need to be much more specific than that? I think, um, actually, well, drawing, as I keep on telling people who write, uh, the oldest known drawing is 40,000 years old. It's of a pig on a wall of a cave in Indonesia, which is rather nice. Uh, writing, on the contrary, is 5,500 years old. and the byproduct of accountancy. So, um, <laughs> so, so this is something we do. And, and as far as I can tell, the oldest caricature uh, is in the Chauvet cave paintings in southern France. And it's of a rhinoceros with an, an absurdly large horn. It would have fallen flat on its face if it had been real. But they exaggerated its horn because that's what defines a rhinoceros as a rhinoceros. And it's, it's what we do. We filter reality through our consciousness. We recreate it in safe mode. That's what art is. And then we start shifting it around to make us laugh, to make us feel better, because laughter is one of the things which defines us as human because we laugh at all the terrible things life throws at us all the time, including power structures. And does that include religion? I mean, I mean one of the... You mentioned briefly the furore around the Danish publication of yeah. the cartoons of Mohammed or the terrorism attendant upon Charlie Hebdo. Do you think everyone is fair game in this? In uh, well, I mean, 
speaking personally, uh, as I said, I'm a satirist. I don't kick down, I only kick up. Uh, punch-up, so I'm attacking people more powerful than me. Uh, I also don't attack people for what they are, I attack them for what they think. I attack them for their opinions. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, religion is an opinion. Um, There are people of faith who would disagree with me and say it's the thing that defines them as being human, but they might change their minds. They can't change their gender or their ethnicity or their sexuality. So so you think that makes it, that that, that, it becomes a legitimate satirical target? But it's a perilous one. I mean, I remember even back, not to, talking about the Muhammad cartoons, that Dave Brown, the independence uh, cartoonist, did a cartoon of Ariel Sharon eating a baby back in 2003. Do you remember this one? I do indeed. And yeah. it was after Goya, and it was it seemed to me to be very clearly contextualised, but it was felt to be by some people, you know, reenacting the blood libel and to be anti-Semitic, whereas it felt to me like it was a piece of hard political satire. Do, do, you, do you see the peril there? Oh, well, absolutely, I see the peril, and I, but I also see it from both sides, that the supporters of the actions of the government of the State of Israel, along with uh, supporters of anything you could possibly think of, will always, not always, but have frequently always used the taking offence defence. So they say, um, well, this is unforgivable because you have offended me, and therefore you've, you've broken the boundaries of decent human discourse, and therefore you're not allowed to say anything more. And... You know, over a period of 20 years, every single cartoon I did about the actions of the government of the state of Israel, not the state of Israel, but the government of the state of Israel, was greeted with hundreds of people howling at me, you are worse than Julius Stryker. Yeah. Uh, and apart from that being sort of crying wolf a bit too often, uh, it's something which I've, I've actually had across the political spectrum. Everybody has accused me of... Uh, Racism, because of the way I draw uh, um, Obama, for instance. Uh, I've been accused of anti-Serb racism. I've been accused of all sorts of things because it's saying, if you know, you have offended me, therefore you're not allowed to speak anymore because you transgressed the boundaries of decent discourse. Therefore, I win the argument because you have to shut up. And that's, I genuinely think that's what the offence agenda is about. It's shutting people up. And actually, um, at least in this country, that's how people are shut up. It's it's horrible, but it's not the state enforcing. You name states who've actually prosecuted cartoonists recently, and you talk about Turkey, Malaysia, India, even Spain. This seems like a risky business where not only can you be criticised, you can also be prosecuted. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a perilous world out there. We, as cartoonists, are constantly... Walking, I mean, if you could have a tightrope on top of a Chinese wall, I don't know if you can, but you, have, you can now. <laughs> yeah, um, you can draw that. Yeah, uh, because we, we, we are more or less meant to say the unsayable, and we're meant to say the unsayable because we don't say it, we draw it. And as I said, it's, it's going back to that sort of very primitive kind of way we, we, we draw things. In the piece I refer to, prohibitions on depictions of things has happened throughout history. That's what iconoclasts are about. That's why you're not allowed to draw prophets, you're not allowed to draw kings, you're not allowed to draw all sorts of different things. In fact, when I was recently in Beirut, I met a Jordanian cartoonist who was the first cartoonist in his country who ever to have drawn the King of Jordan. <laughs> God, I, bet, I, bet, I, bet, I bet he had a nerves in his stomach when he, when he started that. Well, he, 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 he did a bit, but he then met the King of Jordan who said, oh, this is terribly nice, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, it is... It, it is dangerous but it's uh, you know in in, in britain we're, we're very lucky we just get people saying that we are worse than julius striker or we're being offensive or whatever we tend not to get murdered or, or locked up but uh, a friend of mine zunar the, the malaysian cartoonist is currently about to stand trial again on i think 11 counts of sedition under the old uh, british 
<laughs> colonial laws, and he's looking at 43 years in prison because of the way he draws the Prime Minister of Malaysia's wife. And he keeps on, go- he keeps on coming over here, receiving awards from the UN, um, receiving awards from cartoonist organisations for his courage and bravery, and then he goes back to Malaysia to stand trial because he says, I think rather beautifully, if my pen has a stand, I should make one too. Oh my God. And so he's, w- and he's willing to, to, to face jail? Yeah. And what will happen if that happens? Do you think there'll be sufficient outcry to, to, to stop it, or, or, or will, will we have to do time? I think, I think, I think there, there will be sufficient outcry. Well, I hope there will be. I mean, I keep on saying, you know, why are you doing this? And, he says, well, you know. and at the moment, he's running rings around them. Um, and it's, it, I mean, in this country, very, very few cartoonists are ever sued for libel. Yeah. And one of the reasons is that when it does happen, like the last time it happened, um, in this, it was about 10 years ago when my friend and colleague Steve Bell on The Guardian was, was sued by uh, Brian Soonis, a stagecoach, for right, um, yeah. a, a profoundly offensive cartoon <laughs> strip. I mean, it was breathtakingly offensive. And Soonis sued him in the London courts, then moved to the uh, Scottish jurisdiction because there wouldn't be a jury there. And he kept on bobbing and weaving, and he wouldn't give it up until he was finally compelled to listen to the wise counsel of his advisers that he was opening himself to greater public humiliation by pursuing the libel action than he suffered in the first case in the first instance because the greatest crime in british society still thank god is that uh you cannot admit in public you have no sense of humor (laughs) Uh, (laughs) that's very true speaking of a sense of humor which you almost certainly need to have um for people like boris johnson and and donald trump i'm wondering whether these figures who are already ridiculous. I, I think that I think Trump and, and Johnson are, are very interesting cases. Certainly Boris Johnson, surprisingly, in, in both cases, you'd think by looking at them, their skin would be about 12 inches thick. And in fact, it's not. It's very thin. I had an exhibition a, a few years ago of stuff I've done for a, a London-based lobbying company. And I've been doing cartoons for them. And Boris Johnson was meant to come along and open it. He didn't turn up. Uh, and because he doesn't like not to be in control of the jokes. He likes to get the jokes in first so people are laughing with him rather than at him. And it's exactly the same with Trump. I was at the American Association of Editorial Cartoonists Convention in Long Island last November, where all these American editorial cartoonists had been sort of tearing themselves to pieces. How are we going to deal with Trump? Because Trump gets the gag in first. (laughs) And then they realized why he got the gag in first, same reason as Boris Johnson. And he absolutely hates it. A man who wakes up on a Sunday morning and the first thing he does is to tweet about how terrible the impression of him on Saturday Night Live the mm. night before is not a man impervious to satire. But, well, I suppose because his vanity is so strong and, and vanity is precisely what these cartoons prey on. Uh, well, his vanity is so strong, but his sense of self-worth is so small. Mm. <laughs> it is, you know, so, so it makes some difference to him. Why, do, why should he care? He's the President of the United States of America. Because you, know? you do say that there are, Gilray, you mentioned sort of the original type of political cartoonists had subjects who had a sort of self-hating fandom of him. They wanted that they wanted to be in his cartoons as much as they objected sometimes to how he drew them. Is that does that still happen where you have politicians coming up to you and saying, "I, I want the cartoon"? Uh, oh yes, you do. But certainly in, in Gilray's case, and he is he is the kind of um, the godfather of our profession. Back in the end of the 18th century, when you had Charles James Fox being drawn as this unshaven traitor, a fat spherical traitor by Gilray, and he buy all the cartoons, and, and Canning was petitioning Gilray to put him in the satirical prince. I think it was actually part of the business of politics that if you weren't up to, to taking the, 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 the satirical hit, then you weren't 
competence to actually be running the country. So it showed you had, you had the character to take the joke, then for, therefore you could deal with the serious stuff. Um, but a few years ago, I did a cartoon of uh, Dennis McShane, um, yeah. who now is the disgraced former Europe minister. He wasn't then. This is 1996. He'd gone along to a meeting of Eurosceptic Labour MPs who'd met in a committee room in the Palace of Westminster. He'd heckled. He'd heckled from the back. This was a, it was a slow news day. That was one of the big news stories. The other big news story that day was about how BSE had crossed the species barrier from cows into sheep. So I did this cartoon of a sheep rearing up on its back legs, foaming at the mouth on a hill nearby were two other sheep, one of them looking in horror. They say, oh my God, it looks like BSE has crossed the species barrier into sheep. The other one saying, no, no, don't worry, that's just Dennis McShane. <laughs> Easy hit, and he phoned up at 7.30 the following morning saying, I must have the original, I must have the original. I said, yeah, 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 that's okay. He said, you must put me in lots more cartoons. You must put me in as many cartoons as you possibly can. I said, Dennis, look, I'm a, I'm a cartoonist. I, I'm one of the least reliable people you'll ever meet. I'm going to tell absolutely everybody I know about this disgraceful self-serving conversation we've had. He said, I don't care, just do it. <laughs> and, and so you have. And so you have again. <laughs> uh, we, we, we've got to leave it there, Martin. But before we go, you've got a, a fascinating book out very shortly. You've done a, a graphic novel version or graphic version of the Communist Manifesto. Uh, yes, yes. So just in time for Carl's 200th birthday. Uh, what's uh, the thing? And how, how was that? Was it, 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 it? We've got it in front of us. It's really, it's beautiful. It's beautifully done, and it's uh, it's punchy. It must be said. Uh, yeah, well, I, I thought that um, I was approached by self-made hero, for whom I've, I've done quite a few things over the years, and they said, um, what do you think of that? And suddenly the whole thing came clearly into my head. Uh, I first read the book when I was 16, uh, I got it completely, uh, and I realised it's a sort of a kind of John Martin, Victorian, steampunk, clashing of classes and history and dialectics, and then it's stand-up comedy. And I always thought that, I, I've thought that for the last, you know, almost 50 years, that it's stand-up comedy, because uh, he spends the second part of the book just laying into the bourgeoisie and laying into all the socialists he hates, as you'd expect. But I'm delighted to say we've sold the Russian, Greek, German, French and Spanish rights, so I stand to make some money out of this book, which is what <laughs> Carl would have wanted. I'm sure he would have done. <laughs> Martin, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Pleasure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. I love the idea of politicians desperately, uh, desperately craving to be in it. But that Ariel Sharon cartoon I mentioned, I was at the press complaints commission in 2003. Dave Brown, the independent cartoonist, did a picture of Ariel Sharon, and he's eating a baby while there's helicopters swirling around his head. And the line is, "What's wrong? You never seen a politician kissing babies before?" And it says after Goya, because there is a Goya painting that this is this is referencing. We did this decision correctly. So I, I looked, I actually read it again, and it was saying this just you must be allowed to criticise the state, and that may involve the agents of the state. But to, to try and draw a line between those things is impossible. Mm. But actually, you shouldn't try because even if you came up with a perfectly sensible one on this occasion, mm. it can never hold for all different occasions. Mm. And so it's better to just allow freedom of expression. Yeah, I mean, but isn't it interesting that you you would never have got away with writing? a line, you know, a, a stand first to, to a piece that said, you know, Ariel Sharon eats babies or, yeah. or does the equivalent of eating babies. That would never have got past, obviously, because it was inelegantly written in my example. Yeah, but it but something about the, the, the visual nature of the cartoon means that it does. And I think it must have something to do with, um, as Martin pointed out, how there isn't this this verb, you know, you don't read a cartoon, you don't look at a cartoon. I do like the Arabic, which is you watch a cartoon, because at least that suggests something of this developing thing this thing that's developing in front of your eyes with all of these different things coming together and it's more about 
I mean, there's there's the obvious element of it. There's the punch, but there's also more subtle stuff going on there about context. And, and for some reason, the fact that that's Shakespearean, like there's no harm in a loud fool or something like that, where mm. effectively we say to ourselves at mm. least that's an area where you can do some quite leery stuff and we'll let you get away with it, like the court exactly. jester argument. And, and also how, when I was asking about whether we trace it back to ancient graffiti, the interesting thing, I think, is that graffiti are illicit, whereas the cartoon isn't illicit. It has the centre page of, of our most esteemed publications. Including ours. Including ours, yeah. Yeah, very good, very true. Every morning when I was a young boy, I had to leave the house before my school opened as my parents both worked unsociable hours, so I would stop off at a friend's house along the way. The main advantage of his home, along with hot, very sweet tea, was that he was a subscriber to the Beano. Once a week, a day or two later than my friend, I'd get ten minutes of snatched pleasure reading those succinct, cheerful stories of the Bash Street Kids or Lord Snooty or Minnie the Minx. It is that formidable girl who adorns the TLS cover this week, drawn by Emily McGorman Bruce, who was herself inspired by her own childhood reading of the comic. The Beano is 80 years old this year, a mere stripling, of course, in comparison to the TLS, and in that time has come to stand for a certain nostalgic vision of Britain itself, its class system, its love of silliness, its creaking education establishment, and its eventual, sometimes reluctant, sense of fair play. There may be scrapes and japes along the way, but as Lucy Dallas notes in her essay this week, baddies usually get their comeuppance, but in a fairly low-key, unheroic fashion. And there are plenty of slurps and chomps and yelps of gru and yitch along the way. Joining us with her own provincial blurts, as ever, is arts editor Lucy Dallas. Hello. Hello. I don't Lucy. know what a provincial blurt is. Well, you, you talk in provincial like blurts. Oh, right, do I? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah okay. I talk you know, in provincial like blurts. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I do then. Well, yeah. actually, all three of us blurt provincially, I feel. Anyway, before we talk about the Beano's history, Lucy, Dallas, what's your history of reading the Beano? I, Where did you get to it? I actually don't think I can remember a time when we didn't have it in the house. Really? Yeah. I, I, it, I, it should perhaps be something more highbrow, but it isn't. It's the Beano. It was just always, always around and has remained around, actually. Because your kids now read it. Yep, they do. And they read not only the, the current ones, but, but all the archive ones, because I got all the old ones from my folks. So, so they read the really old ones. And they just kind of recycle them endlessly. In fact, I was I was remembering there's a, a photo. I remember my folks going to a fancy dress party as the three bears in full bear because they borrowed my teddy. That's why I remembered it for the to be the the little bear. And they got loads of strings of sausages from the butchers and hung them around their neck. I mean, they must have been boiling and extremely <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah, re- because That's the three gross. bears were always nicking sausages and they've always got strings of sausages and they're carrying big bits of ham. So they got big strings of sausages and put them around their neck. It must have been extremely uncomfortable. Solid commitment to fancy dress and indeed the beano. It really was solid commitment. So that's that's how we roll. (laughs) I mean, how how remarkable that, I mean, you have this whole archive of them and you are still buying it weekly or or is it it every other week now? Weekly, yeah. Weekly. Um, How how consistent has it been then? Has the humour stayed the same? Presumably not. It's changed with the times. It's the the kind of attitude is pretty consistent. It comes and goes. I mean, like anything, it has kind of good good patches and bad patches. But the attitude is pretty consistent, which is kind of Mickey taking and kind of poking fun at. But it's not it's not mean or trendy. Could your kids read an abino from 
from they mid- do they do so I if they were to yeah. pick up a mid-80s Beano yeah. can they get it straight away what's what any blocks to it no mostly you would get it straight away a lot of the characters are the same I mean there's Dennis the Menace and Minnie the Minx and the Bass Street Kids and all that sort of thing but the, the only things that really I've had to, to that I've talked to them about a bit are something I mentioned in the piece which are the, some of the kind of attitudes towards stereotypes because the ones let's say from the 80s are a bit old fashioned um, and the mums are always at home and the dads are always going out to work and any foreigner has got some kind of ridiculous thing on their head and talks in a ridiculous way. Onions around their necks, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and kind of slightly worse than that um, sometimes. And, and Walter, um, the, Walter, yeah. the, Walter the Softy, yeah. who is the person who Dennis kind of laughed at and he sort of... Oh, he did worse than laugh at him. What yeah. did he do to him? Well, he sort of bullies him, does he? Does he bully him? Yeah, kind of, it's, yeah. He is bullying. Yeah, I, 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 I guess so. And I... And, and, um, Yes, and I, I was saying in the piece, I think that's the thing that comes closest to where you, you would go, ooh, hang on a minute, we might need a, a rethink here. And they clearly did that because in the beginning, Walter and his pals, they just skip about. That's what they do. They skip about and, and sniff flowers yeah. and do their homework and everybody hates them yeah. <laughs> for this. I can actually see it in my mind, the skipping, as yeah, you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in fact, what they did uh, cleverly and quite gradually, I think, is they started making him more evil, basically, so that Walter was really out to get the others and that he was a kind of creep and cunning. and So he was a proper adversary. Yeah, he wasn't. Mr. Um, and also, it wasn't. It didn't. Then it doesn't look so much like bullying, and it's not because he's a softy. It's mm. you know, it's it's all. They've they've been very clever about that kind of thing. I think it, it, it's it's interesting that it was so. It was founded in 1938, yeah. which is an interesting time, obviously, <laughs> the eve of war. Mm. Um, how did it? How did the politics? Did they did they seep into I'm the publication? I'm glad to report that they were on the right side. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of uh, anti-Nazi cartoons. Unlike the Daily Mail, they could look back no, in the 30s with a degree, of, with a degree of pride. Well yeah. um, and so one of the first characters is an ostrich called Big Ego, who was always losing his egg. Or oh, eggs. No. I know. Oh, no. I mean, that's that's oh. the thing. It's traumatising <laughs> yeah. for him. It happens all the time. And so in one of them. He takes an exploding egg and he takes it over to Hitler, and Hitler is uh, um, Hitler is th- there's quite a good uh, frame of Hitler sitting with Goering at breakfast, looking at his plate and going, "Oh, I'm sick of this Goering. I've only got half a sausage for breakfast." And uh, Big Ego's large exploding egg comes along with hilarious consequences. What are those consequences? That Hitler gets egg on his face. Uh, not, I think perhaps. Well, maybe he does literally. I can't remember. Yeah. But he gets his, you know, he gets kind of blown, blown out of the room or something. I mean, you, you, you can't get rid of him at that stage. No, no, because <laughs> it's still going on, unfortunately. But there was, they were, they were staunchly, you know, and they were mocking. They were using the cartoons to mock him, which is because we talked. Martin Rousen's piece talks about how the Gestapo had a list of of cartoonists who'd been mocking Hitler, and they were going to be shot. The yeah. first day the they Nazis were, uh, invaded, so the Beano was kind of part of that tradition of of having a, having a go. So. Absolutely, very much having a go. Yeah, uh, yeah. The American comics of the fifties had a similar issue with how they treated world events. What, what's the Beano's relationship to those American comics? Was it because that was the well, that was one of the big eras of comic books, wasn't it? The yes, post-war it was, period. and I think and there was also a bit of moral panic about comics in Britain because the American comics were kind of lurid and full of kind of muscly men and aliens and yeah. weirdos and horror and stuff, and people thought that they were corrupting the youth. And and the Beano just wasn't like that. The Beano is is full of kids in shorts with scrapes on their knees, yeah. with catapults 
you know, it's pretty. It's it's kind of. Just I always wanted. I always wanted a catapult. It is interesting, isn't it, how the Americans have, um, were going for you know superheroes and progressively bigger, yeah. bolder, yeah. muscly characters, and we went for knobbly need little boys. Well, Britain was, yeah, of course, at that period. You know, it's the serious period. You know, yeah. we, we were basically retreating, losing the empire, and retreating into yeah. ourselves. It was probably it was a fairly pathetic period in our history wasn't it i was wondering as well yes i mean yes certainly and i was also wondering whether some of the stuff about whether just constantly all trying to have slap up grub the whole yeah. time they were hungry they were just hungry though you know from presumably from about 1938 till about 1955 yeah, yeah maybe even 60s because they're always going into sweet shops and they have you know and they have they have bangers and mash yeah. and and cakes and pie and that's like heaven that's your reward for if you know, that's the best thing that could possibly mm. happen, which maybe you could argue it is the best thing that could possibly happen. Quite possibly. Yeah. And what, what is your knowledge of the dandy? Because I know that the dandy was, <sighs> it was it was founded the year before and it's by the same, was founded by the same publisher. So I wondered whether, the, whether they were set up to, you know, go in different directions to kind of be different to each other or whether they were just plumbing the same. I can't really talk about the dandy because that's the other paper. <laughs> I'm a Beano fan. You're a Beano fan. So was, that, was it a bit like no. Oasis and Blur? You couldn't. You couldn't. <laughs> I always couldn't felt it was a bit actually that it right. was kind of one or the other. It's not seeping the, the culture in the same Beano way. Beano or the Dandy? I don't think. Well, Desperate, Desperate Dan, Dan has. Yeah. Desperate yeah. Dan was was Cow pie. was the bigger one. Um, and a couple. The Beano kind of inherited a couple of things from the Dandy. And actually, they it, 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 when the paper and ink were rationed, the Beano and the Dandy had to take it in turns to be published. Mm. Um, and, and of course, the dandy is no more. It, no, it doesn't exist anymore. I wonder. No, it doesn't. The Beano sort of et it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but the Beano survived, and and I think it is very good, especially recently, is very good at kind of rolling with the times. Can I explain how it's doing next? I, I recall reading a news story, even as we were discussing doing this piece, Lucy, where it had a pop at Jacob Rees-Mogg. It did indeed. So, so that wasn't in the Beano itself, but the uh, sort of institution. There, the Beano's lawyers sent a letter to Jacob Rees-Mogg, a cease and desist letter, because they said that he was quite clearly impersonating one of their characters, and this was an infringement on copyright. Walter the Softie. <laughs> Walter the Softie. Uh, and they they sort of put up a picture of Jacob Rees-Mogg looking, has to be said, pretty uncannily like Walter the Softie. And they said, um, they said in it, the, the similarities, they were included things like snootiness, um, hair parting and style, and the character's insistence to remind others of his father's successful career, all of which are difficult to... And what do we, he took it in very good heart, it has to be said. Yeah, and what do we think of that? Do we think that's just a um, an old-fashioned institution trying to move with the times and do stuff fun, or do we think that's a bit cheap and not what a ch- children's comic should be doing? Well, uh, you know, they're, they're taking the mickey. That's what they've been doing since 1938. I think that's, you know, I think that's absolutely fine. What they do in the comic is they tend to, um, they recycle stuff that kids are interested in. So you would have thought that kids might not be reading a comic anymore because, first of all, then they started watching telly and then they started playing video games and all of that kind of thing. But they talk about video games and they talk about watching telly. And so they have these very funny versions. They've done a whole rerun of Star Wars using Beano characters. They've done Harry Potter, though they couldn't say Harry Potter. Uh, they did the London mayoral elections. It was very funny. How did that work? Because they were having elections at about the same time and you could either vote for Dennis's dad, who's obviously the person you should vote for or Walter's dad who is evil and would suppress all fun um, and they and, and in the campaign things they actually used some of the Obama you know the way that the Obama posters were presented that yes. instantly recognisable yeah. yeah so Dennis's dad was hope <laughs> 
and Walter's dad was kind of, you know, evil and awfulness. So they're very clever about that sort of thing. And how politically correct is the Beano now? Is it you mentioned that the mums are a little bit more much, much, what about girl? What about girl? Is it is it is it racially diverse? Is it? It is now, yeah. Uh, it's, and it's does it deal with? Does it? And do girls get? Because my daughter had a famous five, and she put it down, Ooh, she, and she yeah. went, "Why is Anne such a wet pants?" Yeah. Uh, and I was like, "Yeah, sadly, that's how she threw." It. I mean, the stories are good; it's well-written stories, but the girls in it are just. You know, George is only fun because mm. she wants to be a boy. Mm. Anne is a girl and just like tidies everything the whole time. Tidies I, I bet the Beano would have been like that in the in the fifties. Well, I don't know because you always had Minnie the Minx, who was never like that. No, yeah. She was an absolute. She was on a par with Dennis and Roger the Dodger, and all of those. And she, Minnie certainly never tidied anything. Minnie's were always filthy. Yeah. yeah um, but there were more male characters. The Bash Street Kids were all boys, weren't they? No, there's one girl, Toots. She's a twin sister of Sydney. Oh. She's also quite a quite a feisty. Okay. But those are the two. Those are the two main yeah. ones. I mean, there were others, and um, but now there are far more uh, female characters, and just and it's generally diverse, more racially diverse, just sort of everything. And they've got someone. There's um, one of the new characters is in a wheelchair, but it's not a big deal. She's an inventor. She just happens to be in a wheelchair, and again, they've done that very well, I think, because they've done it without looking, trying to look as though they're being right on for the sake of it. They just. Yeah. They've just kind of done it. And kids don't, you know, the kids don't go, hang on a minute, this looks a bit politically correct. Yeah. They just want to know if it's funny. They just so do it, it naturally. And if it's, it's funny, popular? then... Yeah, yeah, so I think so. So your son's friends read them too and they swap so them I'll tell you what, everybody, because our house is strewn with beanos and various other things, and everybody, you know, sits down, picks one up, has a look at it. Um, That's I what I used to so. do going to this kid's yeah, home. I exactly. remember you go there exactly. and you'd sit there for five minutes at 7.30 in the morning and it'd be brilliant for yeah. five minutes because you'd read... Two things, and you and, and it sort of it was set you up, set you up for the day exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, does it have a future? I very much hope so. Yeah. Well, so, it, well, it's got thirty-one thousand uh, copies per week as their circulation. Is that right? But so. I bet the readership has always been yeah. tremendously much more yeah. than that for the same reason that you pass them yeah, around exactly. and keep them, and you know, um, and and pass them on. But yeah, I I hope so. so do they have an online presence or not? Yep, they do. Yeah, they've got a quite a they've got a jolly website and they've got a TV thing at the moment and um, mm. they've they, they've got all sorts of stuff. So a traditional yeah. weekly magazine adapting to the modern age and, and surviving. Unheard of. Who, who knew? Who knew? <laughs> who eighty knew? more eighty more years of that, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lucy Dallas, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Jasmine Ward's lush and lyrical prose tells it like it is in tough black communities that usually occupy a more peripheral position, if they appear at all in the great works of fiction. Ward is, our reviewer said last year in light of her third novel, Sing, Unburied Sing, set in a fractured Mississippi family, an important new voice of the American South, one developing, perhaps, into the 21st century's answer to William Faulkner. Her non-fiction treads similar ground. A concatenation of deaths of Ward's brother and her four friends led to a memoir, Men We Reaped, in 2013, in which Ward concludes that all died because of who they were and where they were from. The Fire This Time, meanwhile, a collection of essays and poems about race in America edited by Ward, picks up on James Baldwin's indictment of half a century ago. Asked for the TLS website's 20 Questions series what author or books she thought was most underrated and why, Ward answered, Name most women writers, name most writers of colour or queer writers or writers from marginalised communities, and you have multiple answers to pick from. I think there's a common misconception that such writers don't write universal stories. I, of course, think that is bullshit. Jasmine Ward is clearly a writer for our times. Rosalind Deneen went to meet her. I want to start off with a kind of a practical question. You've written and published now three novels, a memoir and now this edited uh, collection of essays, which has just come out in the UK, all in the space of 10 years. Are you writing with a sense of of urgency? Do you feel like you have a lot to get down, and this, or is this just your pace? I don't know. I think there's a little bit of both at work. Because I feel a real responsibility to write about the people that I write about and to write about the place that I write about, I guess in that respect, I you know, feel like there's a lot that needs to be said. There, there are a lot of stories that need to be told, many stories that need to be told. So I have a lot of material, but I do think that I can be very anxious. And so when I am working on one book, I'm already thinking about what the next book will be because I always want to work on something, right? I always want to be at work on something. Um, The Fire This Time, the collection of essays has just come out. It was prompted by a particular moment. Can you tell us a little bit about how that time felt and your urges to put this collection together at that time? So The Fire This Time was actually prompted by Trayvon Martin, right? Everyone was talking about it, at least in the States, or at least that's what it felt like, right? So he, Trayvon Martin was a 17-year-old black boy, a child, and he lived with his family in Florida, and he went off to the local corner store to, like, get, I don't know, chips and candy or something. Yeah, I can't remember if it was on his way there or his way back. A Neighborhood Watch member saw him, 
you know, Trayvon is black. The Neighborhood Watchmen, I think, is part Latino. I'm not really sure. And so then he, then George Zimmerman stalked Trayvon Martin through the neighborhood because he assumed Trayvon was a threat, you know, that he was a thief or he was going to do something violent. He called into the police a couple times. They told him to calm down, to, you know, go about his business. That he had no, really had no cause, right, to stalk this child through the neighborhood. George Zimmerman did not listen. George Zimmerman had a gun. George Zimmerman confronted Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin fought back. And then George Zimmerman murdered Trayvon Martin. He shot him and he killed him. And so this black child was basically killed because he was a black child. Even if he had been doing something that we, you know, deem wrong, like, I mean, (laughs) he still didn't deserve to die. George Zimmerman was not held accountable for Trayvon Martin's murder because of this horrible law in Florida called the Stand Your Ground Law, which I guess means that if you feel threatened in any way, then you can defend yourself, and defending yourself includes killing children, I guess. Everything about it was tragic. Everything about it was heartbreaking. It was even more, I think, tragic because as black Americans followed the story in the various news outlets, it was very clear that George Zimmerman was not being tried in the court of public opinion for killing Trayvon Martin, but Trayvon Martin was being tried in the court of public opinion for being young and black and a child and sometimes not making the best decisions. You know, he's blamed as a victim. It's victim blamed. It's almost as if people just said, oh, well, you know, he deserved it because he smoked weed and because he cursed, you know, and because, you know, he used profanity. So therefore, you know, because he was black, because he wore a hoodie, right? You know, he didn't commit a crime, but he could have, he was capable of committing crimes because of who he was. So in some way, I guess he deserved to die. But I felt very alone in my heartbreak and my anger because the larger conversation that was taking place, right, in the media, in news platforms, was con- was judging Trayvon constantly was like trying him for his er- for his own murder and was exonerating George Zimmerman. He'd murdered someone and it, and it was almost as if he didn't murder anyone, you know, because he wasn't being held culpable at all. And so Twitter became this place where we could all come together and where we could find each other, you know, and where we could sort of feel I guess feel some sense of community and share, you know, like our sense of sadness and outrage. So I thought that it would be a great thing to reach out to the writers I knew, um, especially those that I'd found through Twitter, who were writing about race in America and ask if they would like to contribute to a collection because in my experience, Twitter, it's such an ephemeral thing, right? And so some really profound idea that you encounter on Monday will no longer be accessible on say Saturday right and so I thought that it would be really great if you know I could gather all these voices together in a book I could gather all these really profound and and funny and elegant things that they were saying about race in America together and then make that easy for people to access and that was especially important when I was thinking about children like Trayvon like like teenagers like Trayvon right kids who are growing up in a world where they're explicitly and sometimes implicitly shown and told 
that their lives are worth less, right? And so I thought it might be useful for children like that to have access to a book like The Fire This Time so that maybe they feel some sense of community, maybe they feel less alone. And you turned in that moment to Baldwin, right, and to The Fire next time. Part of that book, he's talking to his nephew, he's talking to the next generation. And one of the themes I found in The Fire This Time in the essays and the poems, which are ex- profound and extraordinary, lots of them touch on this thing about talking to the next generation, about, in fact, the talk. And when do you stop trying to protect your children from the outside world and realise that to protect them, you need to tell them certain things about how they, well, some of the things that uh, come up in the book are like, make sure you don't run at night, make sure you don't wear your hood, make sure you have your hands in plain sight. How do you think the talk should happen like what what's your position on it i'm still trying to figure that out i have a daughter who was five and i have a son who is a year and a half so i feel i in some respects i feel like i have a little time you know to sort of figure it out but i know i don't have much time you know especially when i think about the fact that trayvon was 17 that tamir rice was 12 and so I know I can't wait until my children are 12 to have that talk with them. I know at least I need to have that talk with them by the time they're 10. It makes me very sad to think about the fact that I will have to talk to them and and teach them these like defensive measures so that it decreases the chances of something happening to them. But something that makes that breaks my heart when I think about it is the fact that no matter what I tell them, you know, as far as like how I try to give them these tools to protect themselves. If they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, on the wrong end of a weapon, regardless of what they do, they could lose their lives, right? So all those defensive measures that I teach them mean nothing if someone perceives them to be threats and if someone means them harm. Trayvon could have done everything, you know, quote unquote right. And George Zimmerman still would have killed him because George Zimmerman's perception you know of Trayvon Martin I don't think that it would have changed you know whenever we talk about sexual assault we're always very careful to avoid victim blaming and to say you know you didn't bring this on yourself it doesn't matter what you wore you know wear anything you want to I mean you know what I'm saying there's this pushback I think in I don't know western society right where we're saying you shouldn't have to police yourself, right? I mean, I, I do feel like this is why Black Lives Matter, the movement and the activism that's taking place right now, why it's so important, right? Because it does place the onus on the perpetrator. You know, there's, there's you know, hands up, don't shoot, you know, the, I, I can't breathe, you know, Black Lives Matter. Like we're saying, don't kill us, stop killing us. But it still makes me sad that we have to sit down with our children and say, don't run at night. Don't reach into your pocket. You know, just all these things. If you're ever in a situation where you're stopped by the police, you know, just comply. Be as respectful and as courteous as you can. You know, try to look and act as non-threatening as you can. And so in some ways, like, we're placing the burden on our children. We're placing the onus for, you know, like, their pain and perhaps the loss of their life. I don't know, like, on them. And it just, it's difficult. It's difficult to navigate. 
Jasmine Ward and Ros Deneen. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Lucy Dallas and Martin Rowson. Do pick up a copy of the paper or subscribe online. This week we have a truly excellent piece on racism and the police by Howard French, which is worth the entrance fee alone. Thea, before we go, you want to say something about the Hay Festival? Uh, yes, believe. yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, only that we're going to be there Hooray! because we are partnering with Hay Festival uh, this year in Hay on Wye. So we'll be there from May the 24th until June the 3rd and we'll be chairing events. You're chairing one with Ian McEwen, I think. I am, and something with Simon Sharma, and I'm talking about my own book at the very Three end. things. Uh, and I'll be joined by the novelists Barney Norris and Emma Healy all of which is to say you'll find the full festival programme at hayfestival.com and if you can make it along come and find us in the Friends Cafe where we will be fully caffeinated and very politely insisting that you take up a subscription to the TLS we certainly will be doing (laughs) and we'll be there for 10 days and it will be brilliant Uh, next week we're going to be commemorating the events of 1968 as they happened all across the world join us to storm the barricades until then from Thea and from me goodbye Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.